there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Why, hello! Welcome back to the shop. You here to check up on sales for the Mark's Little Rumor magazine? That I am. How are things going? Well, let's see here. I think the numbers should be decent. Ah, yes. Here it is. Weird New Jersey. Yep, happy to report good sales for the May 2002 issue, up from last October. Great! The people of New Jersey need their weird news. (laughs) Now, tell me, how's the next issue coming along? Well, we're almost done with the October issue, on schedule. Haven't started in on the May 2003 issue yet, though. Right, right. Let us know if you hear anything weird. You know we're always looking. There was one thing. Did you guys ever hear the story of Jeanette De Palma? It was some kind of ritual killing. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our final episode on Jeanette De Palma, the 16-year-old girl whose unsolved 1972 murder has haunted the quiet community of Springfield, New Jersey for decades. Last week, we covered the theories of satanic sacrifice that spread throughout the tri-state area like wildfire and the Springfield Police Department's strangely lackluster investigation into her death. This week, we'll cover the resurgence of the Jeanette De Palma case 30 years later and the sinister connections it may have had with a series of brutal Union County murders. On August 7, 1972, 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma disappeared somewhere between her family's home in Springfield, New Jersey, and her best friend's house eight miles away in Berkeley Heights. Six weeks later, on September 19th, her body was found on a wooded bluff called Devil's Teeth. Her body was reportedly surrounded by strange, witchy symbols, including makeshift wooden crosses, a coffin made of branches, and a halo of small stones. This imagery sparked a wildfire of local and regional media coverage about the death, 
all linking it to satanic sacrifice and crazed teen witches. But the official 1972 investigation wasn't so sure. Jeanette's autopsy came back without any positive results. Her cause of death was unknown. Investigators couldn't even be sure that she had been murdered, and they got nowhere trying to figure out who could have committed the crime. The case remained cold and forgotten until September 2002, when Mark Moran and Mark Skirman, editors of New Jersey magazine Weird New Jersey, first heard Jeanette's story. One of the booksellers who carried their magazine sketched out the story to them, as he knew it. 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma was murdered in a satanic ritual back in 1972 in Springfield, New Jersey. The two Marks, as they are often called, went ahead and printed the story in their May 2003 issue. They covered anything that they considered weird around the state, and this certainly seemed to qualify. But then something unusual started to happen. The letters started to pour in. People often wrote into Weird New Jersey responding to a story with their own take, version, or memory. But this was different. They just kept coming in. Few of them were signed, and even fewer had return addresses. But it seemed like everyone who'd been a kid or a teen in 1970s Springfield had something to say about Jeanette De Palma. Their versions of the story were all different. Most remembered the witchcraft and the satanic ritual, which was supposedly tied to Jeanette's death. As we discussed last week, that was the highly publicized version of the story. Many of the letters remembered whispers of a police cover-up, something else we considered last week. But the details varied widely, as did the perspectives and sources of the letter writer's information. Mostly, it read like rumor and hearsay. But rumor and hearsay were a big part of Weird New Jersey's beat. They published the letters they received, unedited, for their public to peruse. More letters poured in. Notes about the case started to pop up on online message boards. The bookstore owner's story had brought the De Palma case back to life with a vengeance. Weird New Jersey's publishers started to get curious about this strange, unsolved death. So many people remembered the story so vividly. So many people had something to say about it. And many of them still sounded so afraid in their statements. There was something about Jeanette De Palma. Mark Moran, along with Weird New Jersey writer Jesse Pollock, decided to do some deeper investigation into the case. They interviewed anyone connected with Jeanette De Palma they could find. They dug up every 1970s resident of Springfield or the surrounding Union County they could to ask them what they knew. And a lot of people talked. Ultimately, Moran and Pollock would publish their research in a book Death on the Devil's Teeth in 2015. But in the meantime, they turned up a host of new theories about Jeanette's death, many of which never reached the police or made it into the official investigation back in the 1970s. Some of the police officers who had worked the case even began to discuss these rumors more seriously amongst themselves. Remember the Jeanette De Palma case? God, of course I remember it. That was what, 72? Guess it's been six, seven years now. That's not one I'll easily forget. That poor kid. Well, I've been hearing a rumor lately. Yeah? Not sure where it's coming from, but some of the kids, and I know for a fact some of Jeanette's family, 
They're saying that Jeanette De Palma didn't just stop by Donna Blattis' looking for a ride. Yeah, I've heard this one. Donna was having a party, Jeanette stayed, she OD'd, and then the kids dumped her body up at Devil's Teeth. Right. Exactly. Some people are saying Donna's dad, Mark, had something to do with it, too. Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not so sure that's just a rumor. Are you saying the department is looking into this? I haven't heard anything about that. I'm not saying that. But the only difference between the Blattis family and a group of mobsters is the fact that they actually run a legitimate business. If we went to the mountainside cops and wanted to find out about the party that supposedly happened on the night that the De Palma kid went missing, we wouldn't find anything out. The Blattises are constantly buying dinner for the chief of police over in Mountainside. They have political connections as well. So the Blattis family is untouchable? Exactly. Personally, I think it's pretty darn likely that something happened to Jeanette De Palma at the Blattis house. Donna was always having a party. But even if it did, this case is staying cold. The theory that the wealthy and powerful Blattis family was somehow responsible for Jeanette's death lingered in Springfield, even though it never made it into the official police investigation. But a few people connected to the case pointed out some problems with the idea. If Jeanette did OD at the Blattis party, someone would have had to carry her up the hill to Devil's Teeth. It was steep enough that most people could barely deal with lugging their own body weight up the hill, much less the dead weight of a teenage girl's corpse. It's definitely a strange choice for a body dump, especially since there were plenty of more accessible and equally secluded areas in the surrounding woods. It just seems more likely that Jeanette died up at Devil's Teeth, however she died. And the bluff wasn't, by anyone's account, a party spot. The kids wouldn't have been likely to migrate the party up there. Even if they had that night for whatever reason, it's unlikely that a party full of teenagers would keep the death of one of their friends secret indefinitely. One of them would have talked and the full story would have come out eventually. Finally, there's the most damaging fact of all. Jeanette never called her best friend, who we're calling Lily for privacy, to tell her there was a party at Donna's. Lily was expecting her. They had plans, and they always went to parties together. Jeanette would have never left Lily waiting for her while partying at the Blattises. But the Blattises weren't the only suspects the police never looked into. Sometimes I wonder if we should stop hitchhiking after Jeanette and all. Yeah, I know. But how else are we supposed to get around? Once I get my license, I'll stop, though, for sure. Hi, we were one- Just walking today. Just walking. No need for a ride. Thanks. Okay, girls. No problem if you do need a ride. Nope, thanks. Just walking, like I said. Have a good day. Okay, then. Until next time, ladies. What was that, Amy? I swear, I know hitchhiking isn't the greatest idea, and yeah, that kid's a little weird, but I'm pretty sure he goes to our school. What's his name? A uh, Mike? Yeah, Mike. Sorry, I... Well, I don't really like that guy. He can get really aggressive. Last year, he... Well, he tried to assault me. I fought him off, but... Oh, Amy... 
I'm so sorry. I had no idea. It's not just that, though. He used to pick up Jeanette and her sister Cindy a lot when they were hitchhiking, and he really liked Jeanette. I always worried that maybe he'd do to her what he did to me. You don't think he's the one that... that did it? I talked to Cindy about it once. She thinks he's capable of it. Jeanette's sister Cindy and her longtime friend, who we're calling Amy for privacy, weren't the only Springfield residents who suspected Mike A. had something to do with Jeanette's death. Another woman who was a teenager in Springfield, New Jersey in 1972, identified as Rose McNaughton in Moran and Pollock's book on the De Palma case, wrote into Weird New Jersey that she and friends of hers always thought it was Mike who did it. He was an odd guy into occult stuff. According to Rose, he called himself a warlock, and he lived just a few blocks away from the Bladdis' house. He could have easily been on his way out of the house and run into Jeanette. And if he had run into her, he'd probably have picked her up. Plus, he reportedly drove a red or orange convertible, and a Springfield police officer, who we are calling Adams for privacy, would later say he'd noticed a red Ford Falcon convertible at the base of the path up to Devil's Teeth, right around the time Jeanette De Palma disappeared. But as far as we know, the investigation into Jeanette's death never considered Mike A. as a possible suspect, or seriously looked into the red Ford Falcon convertible at the base of Devil's Teeth. Since the police files on the case were destroyed by flooding in 1999, We'll never know for sure. The investigation may have known about Mike A's connection to Jeanette, but decided he had nothing to do with her death. There's a big lack of information around the Mike A theory, but investigators had access to plenty of information about another theory, which proposes, perhaps, the most disturbing version of the Jeanette De Palma story. They just never put the clues together. Coming up, we'll hear about another Union County murder that happened just one week and six miles away from Jeanette's and the man who may have committed both crimes. Now, back to the story. There was a resurgent interest in the De Palma case in 2003, three decades after Jeanette De Palma's 1972 murder. It clarified that there were plenty of aspects to the case that police, for various reasons, never considered. Perhaps the biggest oversight of the investigation, though, was its failure to delve into several disturbingly similar deaths in the county, most notably one that happened just six miles away from Jeanette's. On August 15, 1972, just over a week after Jeanette De Palma disappeared, Joan Kramer was visiting her parents' home in South Orange, New Jersey, about a 30-minute drive from Jeanette De Palma's house at 4 Clearview Drive. Joan Kramer, like Jeanette De Palma, was a young, attractive brunette. She was average height and weight and wore her straight hair parted down the middle. The 24-year-old had come down from Columbia University with her boyfriend, where they were graduate students, for her family's summer party. But Joan and her boyfriend, Bernard, got into a fight halfway through the event. Joan needed some space. She slipped out of the party and started walking into town about an hour away on foot. 
By the time she got to downtown South Orange, she still hadn't cooled down. She stopped at a payphone and called a friend back in New York to vent. The friend talked her down. She advised Joan to call a cab home. Joan said she would. But then Joan saw a car. Hey, can I get a ride? Where are you going? Just going a mile and a half back that way. On Crest Drive, parents' house. All right, hop in. Thanks, appreciate it. On August 28th, several weeks later, and three weeks before a dog carried home Jeanette Palma's arm, Joan Kramer was found dead. She was lying face down in a secluded wooded area, just like Jeanette. She was seven miles from her home and six miles from where Jeanette's body was lying, waiting to be found. Unlike Jeanette, though, Joan was found completely naked. Her clothing was recovered in a nearby grassy area, but her shoes were never located. Jeanette's feet were found bare, too, although her shoes were near her body. Joan's necklace was missing from her body, too. And the necklace Jeanette was wearing when she disappeared never turned up. Investigators did have better luck with Joan's autopsy than they had with Jeanette's. They were able to pinpoint manual strangulation as the cause of Joan's death, despite the extensive decomposition of her body. The coroner ruled that she'd been dead for at least a week to 10 days, likely longer. While Jeanette's cause of death was officially unknown, according to her autopsy, her coroner did suggest that she might have died of strangulation. The Union County Prosecutor's Office saw the similarities between the cases when Jeanette's body was recovered on September 19th. They set up a special hotline for tips relating to either death. The line got some calls, but none of them proved useful, and investigators gave up trying to work the cases together. While they were getting nowhere with Jeanette's death, they had more productive lines to work on Joan. Mary Collado, a local 50-year-old widow, walked into the South Orange Police Department with information soon after Joan's murder hit the news at the end of August 1972. So, Mrs. Collado, you saw something in South Orange the night Joan Kramer disappeared? Yes, officer, that's right. I was walking out of the tavern around 12.30 a.m. when I saw a car stopped at the corner of South Orange Avenue and Sloan Street. The car was dark green or dark blue, I think. I couldn't see who the driver had stopped to talk to. She was on the other side of the car, but I saw him perfectly clearly. This is very helpful, Mrs. Collado. Do you think you'd be able to describe this man, see if we've got enough detail for our sketch artist to draw something up? Yes. Yes, I think I can. Wonderful. Go right ahead. Well, he was just middle-aged, maybe around 40. Looked like a big man, although it's hard to say how tall since he was sitting in the car. And I remember his face, too. There was something striking about him. Maybe because he was so big, something a little threatening. The man she described was Otto Nilsson. Otto Nilsson was an accountant and former military man, six feet tall, 200 pounds, and 38 years old in August 1972. He was the father of five children, 
and he was considered a likable South Orange family man until sometime around 1970. That's when his marriage started to dissolve into booze-fueled shouting matches. The Nilsen house and children started to look unkempt and sad, left to run wild. And Otto started to get violent, according to whispers amongst the neighbors. No one was surprised when his wife Carol filed for divorce. Otto moved in with his mother in nearby Union, New Jersey, the town right next to Springfield. Carol kept the Summit Avenue house and custody of the five children. The quiet South Orange Street resumed its habitual suburban calm. Until 2 a.m. on July 7, 1974, when Otto showed up drunk on his family's doorstep looking for his ex-wife. He was spoiling for a fight. But Carol and the children were on vacation. When he found his family house empty, he violently broke into the house of one of the neighbors, where his wife sometimes played bridge, although never at 2 a.m. He broke down their front door, ran up the stairs roaring, and punched the confused neighbor in the face. A violent wrestling match ensued between Otto, the neighbor, and the neighbor's two sons. Otto was large and crazed enough to take on all of them. The three were trying to pin him down, but it wasn't working. The mother called the police in a panic. Some drunken madman broke into my house and started attacking my husband. He's totally crazed. Send someone now. Police determined that Otto had no rational explanation for his attack. He was charged with assault and ordered to undergo a 15-day psychiatric evaluation. Doctors floated a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia a mental disorder which can result in paranoid delusions and can sometimes make a patient a danger to himself or others. But Otto was released after his evaluation without any treatment. All he received was a two-year suspended sentence and an order to stay away from South Orange and his ex-wife. The family he'd attacked was disappointed and angry that he wasn't facing worse consequences. But the police had their reasons for not pursuing a worse punishment. They had bigger plans for Otto. As soon as law enforcement dragged him from his old South Orange neighborhood into the station, some of the detectives noticed that his face was strikingly familiar. He looked exactly like the man Mary Collado had described to the police two years prior in connection with Joan Kramer's murder. They pulled out the old file. They started looking into Otto's past. And in early January 1975, they called in Mrs. Collado. Mrs. Collado, do you recognize the man in this photo? Yes, sir. Yes, I do. Can you tell me who he is, Mrs. Collado? That's the man I saw stopped in South Orange, at the corner of South Orange Avenue and Sloan Street, back in 1972, the night Joan Kramer disappeared. Would you be willing to testify to that effect at a trial on the case, Mrs. Collado? Yes, well, yes, I suppose I would be. Thank you, Mrs. Collado. We'll be in touch. I know this has dragged on for a while, but things should start moving very quickly now. On January 10, 1975, Otto Nilsson was arrested on charges of murdering Joan Kramer. He was held without bail until his case went to trial six months later in July of that year. Mrs. Collado gave her testimony. Another witness had seen a car stopped on the same corner around the same time as Mrs. Collado, 
and he was able to give a good description of a woman getting into the car, a woman who sounded just like Joan Kramer. Go ahead and tell us what you saw. She was young, 25 at the oldest, brown hair, straight, in heels and a dress, orange and white, I think. Pretty from a distance, anyway. And she was leaning down to the passenger window of a big green car, smiling sweet-like. Looked like she was asking for a ride. Then she hopped in. Thank you. Our next witness is the coroner who conducted Joan Kramer's autopsy. I can tell you that Joan Kramer died of strangulation, manual strangulation. It was administered by a right-handed individual who was standing either in front or to the left of her. And what time did she die? It couldn't have been more than two hours after she left her family's house. So that's to say about an hour after she got into South Orange and called her friend around 12.30? Jurors, that is to say, by extension, that whoever picked her up in South Orange was the one who killed her, who strangled her with his bare hands. There was no time for it to have been someone else, for someone else to have gotten his hands on this young girl. Whoever was driving that car, that green car, was the man who killed Joan Kramer. The prosecution made a compelling case. They had one witness who'd seen Otto Nilsson and one who'd seen Joan Kramer both at the same corner at the same time from opposite sides of what sounded like the same green car. A green car that sounded a lot like the green Buick Otto Nilsson had sold shortly after the murder of Joan Kramer. But the prosecution had no one who could testify that they'd seen both Otto and Joan Kramer in the same car. The prosecution's second witness wasn't able to say for sure that Otto was the man driving the car he saw Joan Kramer enter. Perhaps because in jail, Otto had grown a beard and refused to shave it off at the request of the judge. And Mary Collado hadn't seen Joan. They didn't have enough evidence to prove Otto's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And on July 16, 1975, the jury acquitted Otto Nilsson. The jury, in a legal sense, was right to let Otto go. The evidence against him was all circumstantial and based on one person's recognition of his face. But if they'd tried some other lines of inquiry, they might have been able to tie him more concretely to Joan's death and to Jeanette's and to several other disturbingly similar Union County murders. We can't be sure the investigation didn't delve into these connections. The records of the Kramer investigation and trial, like those of Jeanette's case, were lost sometime in the 1970s. They may have considered them and dismissed them. But what we do know is there are some striking connections between the deaths of Jeanette, Joan, and three other young Union County girls, Connections that worked their way out of the shadows decades after the investigations went cold. The exploration into these horrific Union County murders had only just begun. Coming up, we'll hear about several more murders that spanned an eight-year period in a small cluster of New Jersey towns. Murders that all looked disturbingly similar to Jeanette De Palma's death. Now, back to the story. In 
In July 1975, a jury acquitted Otto Nilsson on charges of Joan Kramer's murder. No connection between Joan's death and Jeanette's, which happened just over a week and only six miles apart, came up in the trial. But when Jeanette De Palma's case resurfaced in 2003, Union County residents remembered several other deaths around the same time, and they all looked a whole lot like Jeanette's and Joan's. In November 1966, 17-year-old Carol Ann Farino was found lying in a driveway in Maplewood, New Jersey, strangled with her own stocking. On August 7, 1974, a few days after Otto Nilsson was released from his psychiatric evaluation, but before he was arrested in connection with Joan Kramer's murder, Lorraine Kelly and Mary Ann Pryor, 16 and 17 years old, disappeared from North Bergen, New Jersey. They were found a week later, lying face down in the dirt and dead of suffocation. Each girl had a glass soda bottle inserted into her vagina, and each was entirely naked except for jewelry. Both girls wore necklaces, and one still wore her bracelet. These murders, inserted into a timeline with Jeanette De Palma's and Joan Kramer's deaths, look a whole lot like an escalating pattern. Carol Ann Farino was the earliest death back in 1966. She was strangled in a driveway in what looked like a fairly spontaneous, unplanned attack. A few years later, there was Jeanette. Her murder, if she was in fact murdered, was more skillfully and subtly executed. She was left in a secluded place, not found for weeks. Then, a few days later, Joan Kramer was found naked a possible escalation from Jeanette's fully clothed corpse. Lorraine Kelly and Marianne Pryor, the last of the group, were both found naked and in a sexualized pose. But a similar strand runs through all the deaths. From first to last, each death, if we accept the coroner suspicions about Jeanette, was the result of the killer cutting off the young woman's heir. In the first three deaths through strangulation, and the last two through suffocation with a hand, pillow, or bag. Each girl, excepting the first, was found face down. Each was young, with brown, straight, center-parted hair. And each death, excepting the first, included something strange about jewelry. In the case of Jeanette and Joan, missing necklaces were never found. And in the case of Lorraine and Marianne, jewelry was left strangely untouched. And each of them happened in the same New Jersey county over the course of just eight years, all while Otto Nelson was living ominously close by. It's important to note that some of these commonalities could easily have happened by chance. Straight, center-parted hair was the fashion in the 1970s. Many girls and young women would have worn it that way. And older teens and young adults are the demographic with the highest rates of homicide victimization, according to government statistics. It would be impossible to point to these similarities in a court of law. For example, in Otto's trial, as evidence that these crimes were all committed by the same person, and Otto's proximity to the sites of the crime do even less to tie him to the deaths. What the similarities do merit is a close joint investigation, which, as far as we know, was never conducted. Even if Jeanette and Joan were examined together, at least at the beginning of the investigations into their deaths with the joint hotline, 
And there's absolutely nothing to suggest Carol Ann Farino, Lorraine Kelly, or Marianne Pryor were ever considered in conjunction with Joan or Jeanette. After Joan Kramer's trial ended, the prosecutor considered the case unofficially closed. He'd thought they'd put the right man on trial. They just hadn't been able to gather enough evidence to convict him. In September 1976, 14 months later, Otto Nilsson walked into an East Orange, New Jersey hospital. He was brandishing a high-powered rifle. I know you're keeping my children from me! My five children! I know it! You're all working together! Sir, please, we don't know anything about your children. Please put down the weapon. We're happy to help you find them. Shut up! Get in this room! I know you have them. You're all part of it. It's a conspiracy! Otto's mental state had clearly become completely disconnected from reality. He was so unhinged, the FBI had to send in hostage negotiators to talk him down. Otto ended up committed to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, where he presumably lived the rest of his life. His diagnosis was paranoid schizophrenia, the same one he'd received back in 1974, after breaking into his former neighbor's house and violently attacking the man. With the same potential implications, his paranoia and delusions could lead him to be a danger to himself and others. Perhaps Lorraine Kelly and Mary Ann Pryor, the last two girls murdered in the series we've discussed here, would never have died if that first diagnosis had led Otto to a psychiatric facility where he could have received treatment. He was certainly a troubled man, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was a killer. As such, we'll never know for sure if he was involved with Joan's death, Jeanette's, or any of the other Union County girls who died between 1966 and 1974. But there are a few final details that tie the Jeanette De Palma and Joan Kramer cases to Otto Nilsson. After seeing Otto in the courthouse, Joan's father, Julian Kramer, swore the man had come to his office sometime shortly after Joan's disappearance to deliver some papers. Otto was a local accountant. It's not impossible that this could have happened by pure chance. Not impossible, but highly unlikely. Hmm. Well, then there was also the dramatic appearance of an unidentified gunman. Around 1984, a man with a rifle in hand showed up at the door of Gwendolyn De Palma, Jeanette's sister. Her nine-year-old daughter, Rachel, Jeanette's niece, opened the door. Who lives here? What's your name? Who? Who? The little girl stood there, transfixed, mumbling out answers in fear. Gwendolyn, upstairs, yelled down to see who Rachel was talking to. Rachel replied that it was a man with a gun. Gwendolyn was terrified. She yelled for Rachel to run upstairs. The mother rushed her three children onto the balcony in a panic. But as the family peered down to the street below, they saw the gunman walk away, rifle in hand. They never knew what the visit was about. Years later, Jesse Pollock and Mark Moran would show a grown-up Rachel old mugshots of Otto Nilsson. Upon seeing the photos, Rachel said, quote, that definitely looks like the guy with the gun. He was a little older and his hair was thinner, but that definitely looks like him. I wish I could see a photo of him from the 80s. 
But there are no photos of him from the 1980s. Otto was locked up in the psychiatric hospital at the time, which would have made it impossible to show up on Gwendolyn's doorstep. Mm, impossible, except if he escaped custody, which records show that he did at least once. Records aren't clear about when exactly Otto broke out of the hospital, but we know that he did. So it's possible he could have paid a visit to Jeanette's family. Mm, but it's tricky to rely on Rachel's positive identification of his face as proof of that. Children's memories can be very suggestible. The man Rachel spoke to could have been someone else entirely. Or it could have been Otto. But even if Otto did take papers to Mr. Kramer's office and Otto did stand outside Jeanette's sister's house with a gun, that's still not proof that he killed either woman. If he did kill both women, it's still not clear why he'd pay visits to their families. There are no easy answers here. So with all that said, what do we think happened to Jeanette De Palma? I think Nilsson did it. His violent, erratic behavior doesn't make him look great. The connections between Jeanette's and Joan's deaths are too similar to ignore. And Mary Collado's perfect description of him and his car picking up Joan Kramer is pretty damning, even if it didn't hold up in court. I agree. I think Nilsson did it. That green Buick really gets me. And he's the only suspect that doesn't leave a lot of loose ends hanging from the case. Well, the occult theories, which certainly got the most press and are a big part of why the case is still so well remembered today, never held much water. Those theories have a lot more to do with the broader social and political context surrounding Jeanette's death. While Jeanette's death was earlier than the infamous era of the Satanic Panic, which began in 1980, Similar concerns about teen morality and drug use fueled the rumors around her death. She's a part of that same intergenerational cultural and political shift. The satanic panic originated ostensibly with several high-profile cases of babysitters committing heinous crimes against children, apparently as part of a satanic ritual. But the anxieties that fueled it centered on the sense that a lack of traditional morality was carving a new face for the United States, a face that many people didn't like. Jeanette's story, like the rest of the satanic panic, is the story of a community whose changes were happening too quickly and dramatically to understand, without seeing a little bit of witchery at play. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. For more information on Jeanette De Palma's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Devil's Teeth, the strange murder that shocked suburban New Jersey. Extremely helpful to our research. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murder's True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Nora Battelle and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Susanna Corrington, Samantha Moore, Heston Mosier, Steve Pinto, Manib Rahman, and Brett Schneider.